Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, sports fans, and welcome back to this latest edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, where we discuss the best of sports from back in the day. I'm your host, Dana Augusta, and I'm grateful each and every one of you taking time out of your busy day to give us a listen. And just a reminder, don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you hear us. This week, we're going to take a trip back to 1920 for our main event. On August 16, 1920, in a baseball game in Manhattan, Ray Chapman, a shortstop of the then Cleveland Indians, was hit by a wild pitch by Yankees pitcher Carl Mays. Chapman later died because of his injuries and became the first and only Major League player in history to die from his injuries from a regular season game. To talk about the incident is the host of One Guy with a Mic, a history of dingers and dunks, Chad Kane. In this episode, we talk about the game of baseball as it was played at the time during the dead ball era and how that incident changed the way the sport is played. Later in the show, we're going to send a quick shout out to the Ryan Express, more specifically Nolan Ryan, who this week in 1993 collected his 324th and final victory in his long and storied career. And also, and of course, our top five history defining moments that took place over this past week in history. So sit back, pump up the volume. You're listening to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, which is a proud member of the Sports History Network. At the Sports History Network, we're all about the sports yesteryear, and so we're pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings sports history to life. The Row One Gallery features over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, and advertisements in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. Any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. It's your choice. In the Row One Shop, you can pick from thousands of unique items that feature retro and historical backgrounds dating back to 1876. We have everything from clothing to phone cases to mugs, even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row one for access to the full row one catalog. When you buy from the gallery today, you can instantly save 15% on your purchase. All you have to do is enter the code SHN15 and your discount will be applied. That's SHN15. That's it. Simple. 
Save 15% off all your prints in the Row 1 Gallery. Just go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row1. And don't forget to check out all the podcasts on the Sports History Network. Soundtrack provided by Kevin McLeod of filmmusic.io. Hello once again, people, and we're back with this week's edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a proud member of the Sports History Network. I'm your host, Dana Augusta, and we're going to take a trip back this week to the year of 1920 for this week's main event. Now, in the game of baseball, you have instances where you have two men that will be forever linked together for what, for whatever may happen. You have, you know, of course, you have Ralph Branca and Bobby Thompson linked together with the shot heard around the world. You have the 1970 All-Star game dust up between Pete Rose and Ray Fossey at home played at Riverfront. You know, who could forget 1986 with Mookie Wilson hitting a ball between Bill Buckner's legs in game six of the series. And, of course, Kirk Gibson and Dennis, and Dennis Eckersley all together forever with that incredible home run in the 88 World Series. Now, those are some kind of happy, depending on where, what perspective you're talking about, happy moments. But this one, these two men are linked together, is based on tragedy. And today we're going to talk about that. And to help me talk about it is a guy that is that that knows his baseball. And I'm very, very grateful and happy to have him on board tonight. He is the host of one of the newest shows here on the network. Um, one guy with a mic. And this is the history of dingers and dunks. And the host of that show is Mr. Chad Kane. And Chad, glad to have you aboard, man. How you doing tonight? I'm doing pretty good. Thanks, Dana. Well, today we're going to be talking about what I consider the the Ray Chapman incident, which in people that's not really familiar with that, it is the incident that happened in 19, August of 1920, more specifically August 16th, 1920. The Yankees were playing the Indians at the Polo Grounds, and and this was one of those situations where you see all the time, but it really ended tragically where a guy actually lost his life from getting hit in the head with a wild pitch. Now, the game back then is a, is a lot different from the way it is today. And uh, Chad, let's talk about that for a second. You know, this was the dead ball era. This was between 19, the early days of baseball up until that point. Baseball was played very differently. You just, just talk to us about that. Yeah, during the dead ball era, thanks Dana again for having me on the show. Um, during the dead ball era, um, it just this was one of those things where they didn't really have a whole, I mean, they had rules in place, but it wasn't like a lot of rules, and the pitchers could do whatever they wanted with the ball. They could scuff it up. They could use the spit ball. They could um, basically make the ball as unhittable as possible. And then what would end up happening is some of these games would start in the afternoon, and then early afternoon would start to finish around dusk well by that time you know the ball is even harder to see and the umpires weren't really um they would wait the umpires would wait to call the game until they weren't able to see the ball just not just not the players so it was kind of an unsafe error at the time um and one of the things that did happen was this tragic incident that that we're going to talk about tonight 
Okay, now you had the dead ball era, and uh, and at that time pitchers had you you mentioned it that pitchers had all of the advantages. I mean, it was part of it wasn't just the pitcher's job was to pitch the ball to the batter, but it was also their job to dirty up the ball so it was harder for them to see. You know, and I mean, in doing that era, you got guys like Cy Young, Christy Mathewson, Grover Cleveland Alexander, Walter Johnson. Those guys dominated the game, and the hitters were basically like pretty much at their own mercy of, of, of being able to hit the ball. And not to mention the late start for some of these games, what we consider late, what they would consider late start, three o'clock. For us, it's kind of early for right. a game. But what was, I mean, was there a purpose on why they, they would start the games at three o'clock? Like maybe instead of like maybe one or two, maybe? Um, that was, it was just a lot of the guys that actually worked other jobs as well. Okay. So a lot of times we would get, be getting off of work and then have to go play the, go play games because professional baseball players at the time were not paid the way they are today. They were, um, uh, they were paid. I mean, some of the highest paid players obviously were um, were like the bigger names. Uh, you had uh, the White Sox with Shoeless Joe Jackson and Eddie Chicote. They were probably the top tier players, but a lot of these guys still worked jobs in the off season or even during the season as well. So they they would have to work and then put in a full eight hour day and then come and play ball. And basically that was also set up of how baseball really got started in the 1800s as well as that it was just um, different companies, different, uh, yeah, different businesses. The the men would get out and play baseball on their lunch breaks. And then that's really how the game started to evolve even more as then you'd have different lumber yards, like in North Carolina, there was a lot of lumberyards that would um, play against each other and they'd have the lumberyard league and everything else. And then that expanded more into more organized ball. Now during the time doing with the dead ball era, you know, there was another thing that I think that contributed. Well, one thing that you have to understand that the dead ball era is, is, is really true because the ball was different because the ball wasn't as tightly wound as it is today. And so it was a dead ball. But also another thing that contributed to the lack of run scoring, I think also was the fact that the stadiums were so much larger, not necessarily seating capacity, but the actual footprint of the field was so much larger than what you have today. I mean, for example, my favorite all-time favorite old-time ballpark is the Polo Grounds. Sure, they had the short porch and right in right field and left and left field, but straightaway center field was something like 500 feet from home plate. So that was something, and, and that was kind of commonplace during the 19, during the early part of the 20th century. Right, it was. Um, you had old Yankee Stadium that was also the uh, New York Football Giants would play their games there. So center field was. 460 feet away from home plate. Yeah, but then you had your short porches on the, the right field wall was actually shorter now or shorter then than it is now just because of the football field. And even when the Cubs played at West side grounds before they moved to Wrigley field, they, the Cubs was 560 to center field. Wow. So, and uh, yeah. And then you had the hunting Avenue grounds of the Boston Red Sox as well before they went to Fenway. And that was 635 feet to center field. So, 
Just, so he had to pretty much hit two today's home runs to hit hit it out of center field at Huntington Avenue. <laughs> right, exactly. That is very true. Yes. Yeah. So I mean, even I always remember my grandpa talking about um, Mickey Mantle's home run and the old because Yankee Stadium didn't get updated until the mid seventies. Right. So right. even after the dead, even after the dead ball era, you still had Yankee Stadium that was. Still had a deep center field. They brought the they brought it in a little bit, but once the Giants moved to the Meadowlands, but it was still very deep. So I always remember my grandpa talking about how Mickey Mantle would hit a home run 560 feet. So the guys then they had very strong upper bodies and they carried heavy bats. Right. So that's another thing. So. It was the dead ball era, but at the same time, you had Ruth hitting 19 home runs, which was unheard of at that time. 19 home runs. That's so, some, I mean, it, some guys do that in a month nowadays. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah, and I, and I saw this. It, just, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, you're fine. Go ahead. No, I was, I was saying that um, I had heard, I mean, like some of the hardest, I mean, like there are some teams during that time that would – have double digit home runs as a team and they would cause and sports writers back then would call them a heavy hitting ball club. I did a, I did something for a couple of weeks ago, a category in the, the, the 1914 miracle Braves and they only hit 27 home runs for the entire year. Yeah. Which is, for, for a team that hit only, I think it was, I think it was twenty seven, like twenty seven, or I th- it was a very ridiculously no, low number for a yeah. of home runs for the year for an entire team, you know. And yeah, they played at I think right. they they played at Fenway because this was before the year before Braves Field opened. Um, yep, they're playing at Fenway, and the, for a team that hit that few home runs. At Fenway Park, I know at Fenway Park, the dimension might have been different back then than it is now, but it couldn't have been that much different um, because of where it's set up and how it's set up and everything else. And nothing, I mean, you see all pictures of Fenway. It looks pretty much the same as it does today um, with the short, with the short, with the short left field in a big tall fence in right field. I mean, left field. Um, it just looks, I mean, it looked like you could hit a good number of home runs out of there, but at the same token, they had to go on the road, you know, and right. they had, I mean, different places. We talked about the polo grounds. We talked about Ebbets Field, you know, before they added on to, to you know, the, the grandstands around the, the, the left field and everything. So it's a lot of the dimensions had, I mean, a lot of these stadiums back then had these wild dimensions that just, you know, just, it was made it very difficult, and then plus you had the pitchers dirtying up the ball, scuffing up the ball, making the ball do crazy things when it left the, when it left their their hands, and that made that that was one of the reasons why they called it the dead ball era, you know, uh, with the so yep. few runs scored and and very hard to see the ball. Yeah, I mean, because during that time they were only averaging three point four four runs per game. Uh, that's all teams were averaging at that point. So uh, if we if people are like all about offense today, uh, fans are like all about offense, want more offense. I mean, if you go back to the dead ball era, you're, you're guys, you're having guys hit triples, having more triples on the year than they are home runs. Um, <laughs> yeah. I saw that shit, that's that, not, that is not right. uncommon back then. 
Correct. It was, that's the, back then it was the small ball mentality. Still bases, get on base, still bases, and use your, use your guys' speed to get around the bases at the same time. Um, one of the best records, I, I think, because my, my uncle had always, see, a little, my grandpa and my uncle ha, are both huge influences of me in sports. Uh, I grew up with them. I, they grew, I grew up around them in space, sports. So my uncle would always tell me that the most exciting thing in baseball is actually a triple, which right. it is. I mean, because you got to find the perfect spot for it. And here you had in 1912, Chief Owen, Chief Wilson had 36 triples, and it's still a record today. And then <laughs> Sam Crawford had 309 career triples during this time as well. So triples were a huge thing back then. Wow. Yeah, I mean, you're right. It is the most exciting thing in all of baseball, more exciting than a home run, because not only did you have to hit, place the ball exactly in the outfield the way it's supposed to, then you got to have the speed to get around first and second and get the third, you know, before they're able to right. relay the ball into the, into the infield, which is, it is truly a, more of an exciting thing than, than, than basically what we call in Louisiana gorilla ball. Thanks to LSU, but anyway, that's another story <laughs> for another day. Um, um, but then it led to this incident. We talked about how they dirtied up the ball, they the pitcher scuffed up the ball, the late start. All of these contributed to the incident that happened on August the sixteenth, nineteen twenty. And like like I mentioned before, it was a game. It was a game between the the Yankees and the Cleveland Indians at the old polo grounds in, Ma- in Manhattan. And, and believe it or not, it was a tight pennant race between those two teams and the Chicago White Sox, who just who was right there in the beginnings of the Black Sox scandal and the, and the trial and everything that happened. Now, all of that was, was, about, was about to happen. So those three teams was in a tight American League pennant race. And two of the two of those teams, the Yankees and the Yankees and Indians were at the polo grounds and this happened talk about the game and, and, and the incident. Yeah. So it was again, later in the day, um, the, and one of the things again, not even was, was Carl's May scuffing the ball that day. Like you would normally do, uh, the umpires never replaced the balls either when they became dirty. Um, and what happened was that from what I've read and what I, um, what I've read and what I've heard from other people is that, um, that have researches, what research as well is that, um, Mr. Chapman didn't even see the ball coming because the witnesses around it said that he didn't even move out of the way and it just wow. kind of hit him in the side of the head. Um, Dang. yeah. And he went down and was bleeding from his ear, um, actually. And then the last words were, and he was, and more backstory on Chapman is that he had just gotten married that off season before this season. And so this was going to be his last year uh, in major league baseball. Cause he was going to go start because his wife was pregnant and his wife, uh, got pregnant that year and he was actually going to go, be work for her her father in a business in Cleveland is what he was going to do and this was going to be his last season um and so then when he got hit and the he was standing there and they saw his there was blood coming out of the ear they got a doctor out on the field 
and they took him to the um, they took him to the hospital where he would eventually uh, pass 12 hours later. Now, were there a lot of blowback um, for Carl Mays? Because I, I remember reading someplace that Carl Mays was really a something of a disagreeable type of person. And people wanted to, a lot of people wanted to blame him for being something of a, of a not necessarily a rabble rouser, but someone that, was, that didn't have the best uh, reputation on the mound. Yes. Um, Carl Mays that, that day was actually a little angered by, he thought Chapman was crowding the plate and Mays is a submariner. So he, so he was a sidearm pitcher, which even makes it even harder to even see the ball as it is. Um, even, I mean, cause Eckersley, one of the famous side armors, you know, was, was one of the best closers of all time, in my opinion. Um, right. So Carl Mays thought he was crowding the place. So Carl Mays threw the pitch inside, and that is what. And so then, when the ball struck Chapman's head, Mays thought he hit the ball, and the ball was in play because he thought it was it came off the bat. So then he ends up still throwing it over to first base. Wow. So 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 he threw it that hard, where it actually now you got to remember this is in this is nineteen twenty. Yep. There was no batting helmets, so this was just straight right. hitting the guy in the side of the head with a wool baseball cap, and he threw it yep. and it hit the side of the head so hard that he actually fielded it. They thought it hit his bat. Yep. You know, yeah. and, and you said, um, and, and you said that he they, was a submarine pitcher too, and which is you're right. It's a, yeah. a submarine pitcher. You're coming from below, so it's hard to see the ball. Nonetheless, whether you're throwing it, whether it's a perfectly spotless white ball, it's still hard to see because you have no idea where it's going right. to come from. Correct. Yeah. Um. And and there was and Mays did do an interview three months later after Chapman's death. Death. Um. He expressed regret for the outcome, but he said he didn't feel any guilt um, just because he says he didn't do it on purpose. Um, he And like you said, he did get some backlash from other players because Chapman have to, happened to be the only friend of Ty Cobb. Uh, Ty Cobb been friends in those days uh, during his playing career because he would always go spikes up and everybody thought he was a dirty player when he was just and he would play the game really hard and a right. lot of players didn't like it that way. So Chapman being one of Ty Cobb's friends, Ty Cobb suggested that someone should give Mays a taste of his own medicine uh, by hitting Mays with a pitch the same way he hit Chapman. Wow. So I mean that's that's interesting that that Chapman actually was a friend of was 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 a friend of Ty Cobb and Ty Cobb has been known yeah. as one of the you know, one of the dirtiest players, not only in baseball, but maybe in all the sports. Um, and right. he's, you know, and he's, you know, a lot of people consider him one of the greatest baseball players of all time, you know, with the amount of records that he's had, which is incredible, highest career batting average and all of those things. But he still was was pretty much hated by a lot of a lot of the players and managers and stuff back then. 
And um, and now Chapman dies 12 hours later, you know, and the Indians got to play. They could, they got another, they're in the middle of this pennant race. So they have to leave, they have to put this aside. They got to put this behind them and move on. And boy, did they ever move on. Yeah. Yes. The Indians, uh, the Cleveland Indians that year ended up wearing black armbands for the rest of the, the remainder of the season that year. And then they would go on to win the 1920 World Series um, over the Brooklyn Robins. Five games to two. Right. From back then, they played nine-game series as well. Yeah, they had a nine-game series then back then, you know, which is, for me, yeah. I'm, I'm just still trying to wrap my head around that. You know? <laughs> then playing a nine-game, best five out of nine. Uh, it seemed like that series right. was taking forever if it went on nine games. <laughs> Correct. And they want to talk yeah. about the NBA, first round of the NBA playoffs take forever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> You know, um, well, yeah. but that, but that, but that was interesting is that, you know, do you think that they were inspired just, just on your personal, you know, your personal estimation doesn't have to be like anything that you've read or anything like that. But do right. you think that, they, that, that it might've been a small chance that that Cleveland Indians team was inspired to play and finish off the season and win the world series? I do. I very much do. Tris Spreaker was actually in the on deck circle. And he was the player. He was actually the player manager of the Indians that year. Right. And he was in the on on deck circle when Chapman got hit. Um. So I do believe that he uh, was that he rallied the troops and pushed them to get over the edge in memory of of Chapman. Yeah, and he and, and Tris Speaker was the one who notified uh, Chapman's wife that something yeah. that happened at the ballpark and asked her to come to New York um, to be by his husband's side, you know, doing the, but she couldn't make it there in time. But, you know, with the travel time between Cleveland and New York isn't what yeah. it is today. And she couldn't get there in time, correct? Correct. Yeah, she. Yeah, he ended up passing away at 440 in the morning uh, Eastern time, and she ended up showing up at 10 a.m. And she's pregnant and just the news that made her faint oh, uh, wow. at that time. Oh, and even, and even, you know, when Chapman was being taken off the field, he said to Bill Mulder, I'm all right. Tell Mays not to worry. And ring Katie, um, and ring Katie, his wife, before yeah. he fell unconscious. So he, so Chapman, I, if, this account is correct, which there were several players around um, that when it, when he said this, then he knew Mays didn't do it on purpose. That right. Mays was just, it was just a baseball play. Um, and I think back to, I think of Bryce Harper this year, how he took a fastball to the hand and he broke his hand, but he said, I don't understand this, how he can take a, fa- a fastball to the hand, but and it breaks my hand, but if I take a fastball to the face, uh, nothing happens because there's been multiple instances this year, or, you know, the last 20 years where um, players have had pitches thrown at their face, you know, and hit by pitch in their, in the eye or whatever. And right. nothing has of this has ever occurred ever since. 
Well, I, I think a lot of it, too, is the fact that, you know, you kind of see the balls coming at you as opposed to what happened in 1920 right. when Ray Chapman didn't even see it. On account of it being Correct. dark and with no lights, so we got to remember this is 1920. Lights didn't show up in the majors until the mid-1930s. Um, and so this was in a dark afternoon. And from what I understand, it was a dark, dreary, cloudy day in New York, you know, in an already dark, cavernous uh, polo grounds. Um, even it was dark and cavernous and creepy looking even back then. Um, but um, but you really, he really couldn't see it. And nowadays you could see the ball coming at you and you could have time to at least prepare. Ray Chapman, from the way it sounds from all accounts, didn't even see the ball even approach yeah. for him to even react. Correct. Yep. Yeah, that's very true. Right there. Yeah. The with and they would have no hitting back. They would have no hitting background either behind the pitcher. No, no batter's eye, you know, nothing. It was just just Yeah, no batter's eye, yep. Yeah, nothing. It would just be darkness out there. <laughs> I don't even, I don't understand how I mean I I as a kid playing baseball growing up I would uh, have my have my stepdad sit on the I remember having him sit on my front step because we had uh, a cement three cement steps that would go up to the front of our house uh-huh. and we had one we had one light on the front of the house that would just pop it was one of those motion sensor ones uh-huh. so it would just pop up when we in motion I would stand in the middle of the yard and he'd throw pop flies. And it wouldn't come on until I moved, and then I'd catch it once the light came on. So right. I don't. So I try to think of that and how I'm actually getting the light. And here, here you have outfielders and players that are playing deep, deep outfield and trying to get, track a ball off a bat late in the day. Sun's going down, great, tall grandstands, and it's just amazing of how well those players played the game back then wow i mean yeah i mean you, you're right about that because you had to deal with that the dark the dark ball against a dark a darkening sky you know and it, and it, and it was and you got that mixed in and i think of they they showed in the old they showed like a clip of trying to of how to catch a fly ball in the old metrodome uh i mean the ball would be hit up in the metrodome roof and you would just lose track of it and you're like, and as an outfielder, I would have been like, oh, my God, where's the ball? Where's the ball? Where's the ball? And all of a sudden you see it coming and then you got to hurry up and catch it. But, I mean, this is something that they had to deal with every day on a daily basis, you know, when the, and not to mention. And then you had then they didn't have the advantage of a bright white ball. They had to deal with a dark grayish brownish ball, you know, coming descending from the heavens that they had to first find and then catch. Right. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of it would have guys would take two, the chewing tobacco out of their mouth and rub it on the ball. Like it it was just normal then. Like now we, uh, it it wouldn't, now again, we'd be like, we got pitchers coming off the mountain getting checked or the infamous, uh, I think it it was Phil Necro that, had the file in his back the nail file right and, that's right yeah yeah the nail file and he throws it out of the back pocket and lands and the, <laughs> and the second base umpire picks it up like uh this is yours right <laughs> so <laughs> i mean it's so yeah so like now it, it will it would be 
we'd find it uncommon and call it breaking the rules. But back then, it was just that was your, it was your job. Did. That was that's what a pitcher job right. was supposed to do. They, they were supposed to go out there yeah. and dirty up the ball. I mean, I remember one time somebody. I remember I forgot, I forgot where I read this at and who actually said it, but it was hilarious. But it was it was the actual best way to describe the dead ball era was the fact that. You have a guy, you get a brand new white ball, the pitcher we get it, and you know how they throw it around the infield to warm up. They go one, go around the horn one time and get back to the pitcher to be as black as the ace of spades. I thought that was funny. Yeah. <laughs> right, because everybody's, everybody's doing something to it. It's just, it was, I don't know. Like I said, it's just crazy back then. And it's no wonder that Walter Johnson had a 1.170 ERA at that time was a record. Right uh, until that, until Bob Gibson what they were able to. Yes, and funny story about that deal is, and I think I talked about it in my in my podcast last week was that um, Walter Johnson got put into a game late in the game, and his ERA was he so he's put into a game. They get two runners get on base, they pull him out of the game. The next pitcher comes in, allows those two runs to score. So then his ERA jumped up to one point one seven. Otherwise it would have been a one otherwise it would have stayed if he doesn't get put in that game, his ERA stays at a one point one two for that year. Right. <laughs> yeah. Now Yeah, and then Bob yeah. Good. And then Bob Gibson, like that we had to raise the mound because of, of of him. Right. Like because of how well he pitched was and so I mean, yeah, you had the dead ball error and the pre nineteen twenty, but then what do you what do you call it in the in the sixties when you had Bob Gibson and Sandy Kopax not allowing people to score runs either. And yeah. they were doing it just by striking guys out and with their stuff and yeah. I mean when you have to raise the mound because you have a pitcher that good. Yeah, I mean yeah. I mean the, Bobby, I mean I, that was that, that that was about to lead into that because there was a period of time between nine from the from the the dead ball era ended, which was pretty much at that instance, to nineteen sixty. It yeah. was basically an era of home run hitters, and it wasn't until the nineteen sixties, but you know, until you had guys like uh, Colfax and Drysdale and Juan Marichal and uh, Bob Gibson come in and they had to and they raised the mound because of the because the owners were alarmed by the amount of home runs that was being hit at the time and I think most of the biggest reason why it wasn't because of you know that pitching had fell off or whatever but it had a lot to do with expansion because you had all these new teams you had teams in you know you had the yeah. Angels and Astros and Mets and you know the twins. You know, and the, the the new brand new the brand new Washington Center. They expansion thinned pitching, so that was the reason why you had at that time. You know, you had all of these home runs being hit because the pitching wasn't the same. Now, with the right. incident that happened in 1920, Major League Baseball decided, okay, enough of this dirtying up the ball nonsense. Enough of this. What we're going to do is we're going to make some rule changes here, you know, in the in the in the for, for, to make the game safer for players. Okay, so they instituted these rules. Mainly, any time a ball was hit or scuffed up or hit the ground or whatever, they had orders to replace it, and so that started right after the incident in reaction to Ray Chapman to the Ray Chapman incident. 
Yes. Yes. Right after that. Yes. Right after that happened, they instituted the rule to require the umpires to replace the ball whenever it became dirty. And then after the 1920 season, they banned the spitball as well. Yeah. Um, And they they banned the spitball, right? Yeah. Yep. Yep. So, yeah, there was a lot of rules. I mean, a lot of rules that took effect. Um, but at the same time, the wearing the batting helmet didn't become, you know, popular until 30 years later. Yeah, until like the 1950s. You know, that's when batting helmets, yeah. you know, the 40s and 50s, you know. And then you have another thing that corresponded right around that time with in, in 1921. And that was a man by the name of Babe Ruth who started hitting home runs. And pitchers, along, you know, with Ruth and the new rules for pitching and the new rules for not dirtying off the ball, pitchers had to change the way they did, had to change the way they pitched. And hitters jumped all over, it seemed like. Yes, hitters definitely were, were basically jumping all over it. Um, yeah, that's when Ruth really, Babe Ruth really started hitting all of his home runs. Was at was a he gets traded to the Yankees and starts playing on the the three hundred and thirteen foot right field porch of Yankee Stadium, and mm-hmm. two the then you also have the the rule changes where he's able to the ball better now because they're able to like move it in and out. So yeah, that really led to the expansion of home runs, which then led to more pitchers throwing inside as well to get players to back off the plate because they were still crowding it. Right. But that was just, that was just one of the things, one of the, one of the um, I guess, characteristics that you say at the, at the dead boy era is that a lot of the hitters were crowd the plate. And you, and that which was one of the reasons why uh, Chapman, what happened to Chapman happened. Um, but a lot of the a lot of the players still started was still crowding the plate, you know, when they came to bat after the incident. Yeah, they did. They very yep. They very much did. Um, and it was just to basically get into the pitcher's head and say, "I'm going to own this part of the plate, and and we're going to see what happens." And I think I think also with having that that Chapman. Chapman incident fresh in pitchers' mind because obviously they saw Carl Mays get all the backlash that he had. They didn't want to have, they didn't want to be another one of those guys as well. So a lot of the guys did stop throwing inside, which also led to, um, you know, you also led to the retirements of of more players as well. Pitchers, so a lot of the pitchers started to leave the game, like your Walter Johnsons and your Christy Mathewsons. They, um, I mean, those guys were like the, the, like the really, really, you never see pitchers like that again. I mean, you have like Walter Johnson, second all time with wins, Cy Young with the, with the most all time wins, which I think are two records that will never, ever, ever be broken. I mean, no one really ever even approached those records, you know, and a lot of it was because of the, 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 the trickery and the chicanery of what happened in the dead ball era. Uh, Chad, before I let you go, man, I really thank you for all the info you and all the knowledge that you dropped on us. Uh, and before you go, what you got planned coming up for your show? 
Um, well, I took this week off, uh, and then I am planning a big uh, – September is going to be huge for me because I'm doing uh, Australian baseball. I'm going to dedicate an episode to baseball in Australia. Um, and then in October, I'm doing another big one for basketball in Australia. I'm really trying to um, make it to where I can do dedicate one episode to – a baseball or one dedicated to basketball. Um, I have been doing a little both and I think it's a little bit long. <laughs> I think it's a little winded on my part. And I like my voice, but I know a lot of people, a lot of other people don't want to listen to me for an hour. So <laughs> at least that's what my my wife tells me. Anyway. So, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I'm, I'm going to continue my, my players born in, in states, I've already done Iowa and Alaska. Um, we're going to expand it in September and October to Australia and then do some international stuff as well. Um, I think, and then uh, come Christmas time, we're going to, with basketball in full swing, because to me, basketball season, yeah, it starts in late October and early November, but it seems like basketball season really starts to kick in when the Christmas games happen. So thank you, thank you, somebody who finally agrees with me. Somebody who finally agrees with me because yeah. my, my, my best friend would ask me stuff about the NBA in the day before Thanksgiving. I'm like, dude, I haven't even watched anybody dribble a basketball <laughs> it right now because right now I'm, I'm deep deep in the football. Okay, yeah, which, you know which I am right yep. now between. You know, the NFL coming up and high school and my, my son playing high school football. He's a senior in high school. So this is final year. So I'm enjoying that. So, dude, it's it, I get it. But, but you're right. Yeah. Basketball to me does not start really until Christmas. That's when basketball really starts. That's when I pay attention to it. Yeah. Yep. Those Christmas games are is what draws everybody in. And then I'm once I get to those Christmas games, I'm hooked on the NBA season uh, pretty much for the rest for the rest of the season. And then, and then once you get to the all-star break, you're two weeks away from March madness. And, Oh yes. And I just, I mean, I just think, I mean, we're end of August right now. Like all that stuff is seven months, six months, seven months away. You know, we're really like that close to it again. I mean, time just flies. Right. The older I get, I just turned 40 this year and the older I get, the more I realize it. And so that's why and that's one of the reasons why I started doing a podcast. Uh, I started my podcast on a whim back in January. I was on a I was on a phone call with my brother in law, and I said, "Hey, I really want to do a sports podcast." And he goes, "I would listen to that." And I'm like, "Done. I'll have at least one listener then." And yeah, it's just been it's just been a wild ride from this year, and it's been great. And then to come in, then to come into the sports History network in May, um, mm-hmm. meeting Arnie, and then and just connecting with all of you guys has just been a huge huge thing and a huge opportunity uh for me and i'm grateful for all the little side chats we have um Mm -hmm. grateful for arnie always providing feedback and stuff so yeah you guys you guys are really you guys make it feel like a family but that's 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 what we try to do that's what we try to do we're not in competition with nobody we're there to help each other out and you talk about a plug in a network that's one heck of a plug i tell you that Yeah, I hope Arnie. I hope Arnie listening. Arnie, you listening? Anyway. Yeah, <laughs> you can use that for a commercial, I, I, right? As the as as the new guy, you go ahead and use it, man. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> Don't forget to send us the check. Anyway, um, right, yeah. Chad is a very, very. It was fun to have you on tonight, man, and uh, I really appreciate you coming on the, the, the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. And um, once again, man, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate you coming in. All right, hey, thanks for having me. And by the way, you're the first person to have me on the on their own show. So you. Uh, <laughs> You did awesome. I'm I'm so glad I, you let me come on. I really appreciate it, man. Man, thank you. Thank you for coming on. And, folks, we'll be right back right after this short message. Hey, football fans, this is Ross, the host of the Pigskin Tales podcast. I need a second to talk about Joe Zagorski. He's an NFL writer with a podcast called Pro Football in the 1970s. You see, in the 1970s, the sport of professional football grew in popularity like never before. The game became more modern, more technologically savvy, and, thanks to the tinkering of the rules throughout that decade, the product that one saw in pro football made the struggle on the field that much more exciting to watch. When you listen to Joe Zagorski's podcast titled Pro Football in the 1970s, he explores many different areas and elements of the 70s. What he focuses on are the players, the teams, games, controversies, and legacies that the decade has left for pro football fans across America. This is a show where the memories of what has been termed by many as the game's greatest decade are explored in vivid detail. Listening to Pro Football in the 1970s podcast will have you remembering with fondness the greats and the great moments of the game. Players like Joe Namath, Franco Harris, Roger Staubach, Bob Greasy, Earl Campbell, and Walter Payton are just some of the players that Joe talks about. Some of the games Joe talks about are Pittsburgh's immaculate reception playoff win in 1972, the original Hail Mary pass in the 1975 NFC Divisional Playoffs between the Dallas Cowboys and Minnesota Vikings. Then there's the perfect season of the 1972 Miami Dolphins. Joe also talks about team dynasties and what decade produced more of them in the 1970s? Well. Teams like the Cowboys, Dolphins, Raiders, Rams, and Vikings, to name a few. Have you heard about the 26-game losing streak of the 1976-77 Tampa Bay Buccaneers? If not, Joe will take you on a wild ride through their first two seasons. So take a chance and listen to Pro Football in the 1970s with NFL author Joe Zagorski. It's just one of the great podcasts available through the Sports History Network. Hello, sports fans, and welcome back to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, where we focus on the best of sports from back in the day. And just to remind everyone out there, you can follow us on Twitter at HistoricallySP2. To get your daily dose of sports history. In addition to that, you could also drop us a line or two at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. And right now, it is time for the Home Field Apparel Top 5. Home Field Apparel is the sponsor of our weekly Top 5, where we count down the five biggest historical moments in the world of sports history that are celebrating anniversaries. And it's being brought to you by Home Field Apparel. 
College football season is rapidly approaching, and the best way to show off your school spirit when you attend your team's games is to wear a shirt or hoodie from Home Field Apparel. They have a wide range of styles for your favorite team with what I call old school logos and not to not only make you stand out in the crowd, but also show that you are a true fan. They have shirts that represent close to 200 schools and adding more schools and more styles every day. On the website, you could hit the rewards button located at the bottom of the screen and get 20% off your next purchase if you refer a friend to the site. Pretty cool, huh? So give Home Field Apparel a try. For your next tailgate, that's Home Field Apparel, where they study your school's history, traditions, and legacies to create thoughtful premium apparel. A must-have for your next tailgate. Once again, Home Field Apparel, where they are fond of saying, wear one for the team. And now, on to our countdown. And this week's countdown deals with historical moments that celebrated anniversaries this week, which includes the formation of one of the best sports magazines ever to hit newsstands and a new football league is formed. So without further delay, here's the top five events in sports history that took place between the dates of August the 14th and August 20th. Number five, the New York Jets defeat the New York Giants in a preseason game. Now, there are preseason games, and then there's a preseason game like this one that took place on August 17, 1969. The New York Jets, fresh off of winning Super Bowl III, took on their crosstown rivals, the New York Giants, at the Yale Bowl in New Haven, Connecticut. It will mark the first time that the Jets and Giants would ever face each other on the field, and even though it was an exhibition game, the game had all of the fierceness and emotions of a postseason contest with everything on the line. In fact, it was so big, Larry Grantham, the Jets linebacker from the season before, said that some players that were considering retiring changed their minds upon hearing the opportunity to play against the, new, the hated New York Giants. The Jets had played in the shadow of the Giants since the team was started in the upstart American Football League. More about them later. On this afternoon, before a crowd of 71,000 fans, the Jets dominated the, the Jets dominated the Giants 37 to 14. Namath went 14 to 16 for 188 yards and three touchdowns in the win. And just to remind everyone, 71,000 fans at a preseason game. Number four. Eddie Goodell gets a major league at bat. If you've never if you've never heard of Eddie Goodell, it's okay. But he has a distinct part of Major League Baseball history. He gained recognition in the second game of a doubleheader between the St. Louis Browns and the Detroit Tigers. On August, August 19, 1951, and weighing just 60 pounds and standing just 3 foot 7 inches tall, Goodell became the shortest player ever to appear in a Major League regular season game. Goodell, wearing the number 1 8, walked on four pitches whose strike zone was only one and one half inches tall. He, later re he was later replaced by a pinch runner after he reached first base. This was the brainchild of Browns owner Bill Veck, who was also the mastermind behind the White Sox wearing shorts in the mid-1970s and was one of the best-known baseball promoters of the history of the game. Number three, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway opens. Indianapolis businessman Carl G. Fisher first envisioned building the speedway in 1905 after assisting funds 
assisting friends racing in France and seeing that Europe held the upper hand in automobile design and craftsmanship. Fisher began thinking of better means of testing cars before delivering them to consumers. At the time, racing was just getting started on horse tracks and public roads. Fisher noticed how dangerous and ill-suited the makeshift courses were for racing and testing. Fisher proposed building a circular track three to five miles long with a smooth 150-foot no, wide surfaces. Such a track would give manufacturers a chance to test cars at sustained speeds and give drivers a chance to learn their limits. Fisher predicted speeds could reach up to 120 miles per hour on a five-mile course. So, on August, the 9th, August 19, 1909, the new Indianapolis Motor Speedway opened as 15 car makers teams arrived at the track for practice. The track surface again became a concern with drivers being covered in dirt, oil, and tar with ruts and chuck holes beginning to form in the turns. Speedway workers oiled and rolled the track prior to the gates opening to the public. 15 to 20,000 spectators showed up paying at the most $1 per ticket. Halfway through the 201st 250-mile event, race leader Lewis Chevrolet was temporarily blinded when a stone smashed his goggles. Wilfred Bork, driving in a Knox automobile, suffered, in, sus suffered a suspected rear axle failure resulting in his car flipping in overend on the front stretch before crashing into a fence post. Both he and his mechanic, Harry Halcombe, died at the scene. The first day of car racing resulted in two land speed records. Number two, Sports Illustrated is first published. If you are a true sports fan and ever follower of sports history, you know the cover. It was an at-bat by Eddie Matthews of the Milwaukee Braves at brand new Milwaukee County Stadium. It was the cover of the very first issue of Sports Illustrated, first published on August 16, 1954. After getting little traction going in the 1950s, Sports Illustrated fortunes turned in the 1960s when the magazine used more, more full-color phot photographic coverage of weekly sporting events along with well-written feature articles about well-known athletes at the time and oh by the way, having a swimsuit issue doesn't hurt. And finally, the number one historical event between the dates of August the 14th and August 20th. The first league meeting of the new American Football League is held in Chicago. On August 14, 1959, led by Lamar Hunt, who is the heir of millionaire oil tycoon H.L. Hunt, led investors to propose the formation of a new professional football league based in the United States. In that initial meeting, charter memberships were given to the cities of Dallas, New York, Houston, Denver, Los Angeles, and Minneapolis, St. Paul. A few days after the league was officially named the American Football League, which would begin playing the fall of 1960 with eight teams. The rival NFL initial reaction was openly hostile, and the more established league approached the NFL owners, the, the potential AFL owners, excuse me, with vague promises of how the NFL franchise in their cities or ownership stakes for in existing new ones. Only the party representing the Twin Cities bit on the offer from the NFL. And in 1961, the Minnesota Vikings began play, joining the Dallas Cowboys who joined the NFL the season earlier. As, the, as for the remainder of the new American Football League, just before the kickoff of the new season, the, N, the AFL lured Ralph Wilson, who owned a small share of the Detroit Lions, 
to the new league and set up a team in Buffalo. And to replace the Minneapolis entry, the AFL added a team on the West Coast to go along with the team in Los Angeles. The city of Oakland, California is selected as the final team in the AFL's inaugural season, led by F. Wayne Valley and local real estate developer Chet Soda. The season began on Friday, September 9, 1960, in a game between the Boston Patriots of the Eastern Division and the Denver Broncos from the Western Division. The other teams in the Eastern Division were the Houston Oilers, Buffalo Bills, and the New York Titans, who would later change their name to the New York Jets. In the Western Division, the Broncos were joined by the Los Angeles Chargers, Oakland Raiders, and the Dallas Texans, who would move a few years later to Kansas City and become the Chiefs. The league would find success forcing the merger agreement in 1966 and ultimately joining the NFL by 1970. And that concludes this week's Home Field Apparel Top 5. And coming up on the other side of the break, we're going to send a shout out to one of my baseball heroes growing up, who has the record for the longest career in Major League Baseball history. This fireballer from Alvin, Texas was fanning batters for 27 seasons in the majors and has the most no-hitters of all time. His career coming up after the break, so stay tuned. With every race, every qualifying run, and every pit stop, Tim Coffeen would feel the pressure and excitement. With his own podcast on the Sports History Network called Tim Coffeen Talks IndyCar and Racing History, Tim will share those very same racing emotions and memories with his listeners. Learn, laugh, and enjoy the world of IndyCar racing through the eyes of Tim Coffeen. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. The Pigskin Tales podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the sports yesteryear. Hosted by Ross Bliley, the Pigskin Tales podcast takes you on a journey through life of pro football stars such as Ernie Nevers, Red Grange, and Fran Tarkenton. Plus, you might not know them real well, but you can hear stories about Bill Brown, Grady Alderman, and Dave Osborne. You can learn more on these players at sportshistorynetwork.com backslash podcasts backslash pigskin dash tales. And we're back for our final segment of the program, which we'd like to call our shout out. And this week, we're going to send a shout out to a baseball Hall of Fame pitcher and one of my baseball heroes growing up. Of course, we're talking about none other than Ryan Express, Nolan Ryan. This week in 1993, Ryan, pitching for the Texas Rangers, won his 324th and final game of his 27 years in the majors. His 27 years is tied for the longest career in Major League Baseball history, matching Cap Anson, who played for the Philadelphia Athletics and the Chicago White Stockings in the late, 19, in the late 1800s. Ryan was a right-handed pitcher whose fastball was consistently clocked at over 100 miles per hour. Ryan came into the majors in 1966 with the New York Mets and won his only World Series in 1969. He stayed with the Mets until 1972, then he was traded to the California Angels where he led them to their first American League Western Division title in 1979, which actually was his final season in Anaheim. In 1980, he was traded to the Houston Astros in his home state of Texas where he was at the height of his career. 
1989, he was again traded, this time within the state of Texas, moving to Arlington, Texas, with the Texas Rangers. And throughout his long career, he pitched a major league record seven no-hitters and 12 one-hitters, tying him with fellow Hall of Famer Bob Feller. In all, Ryan struck out a major league record 5,714 batters and was selected to the All-Star team eight times throughout his career and is one of three players joining Jackie Robinson and Frank Robinson to have his number retired by three different teams. Ironically, Ryan had never won the Cy Young Award and is one of only 29 players who have appeared in Major League Baseball games in four different decades. Now that's what I call longevity. And that will do it for this edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. And I'd like to thank you for taking time out of your busy day to give us a listen. And also I'd like to thank the host of One Man with a Mic, The History of Dingers and Dunks, Chad Kane, for joining us for this edition of our podcast. And if you like what you hear here, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. And please follow us at historically sp2 on twitter and also drop us a line at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com and until next time i'm your host dana augusta saying thanks for listening and we'll talk to you soon Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians. You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.